when, the, when we started to build Tether, you know, I, I, I had to really spend a lot of time thinking about that and what was that. And, and it was the same as all the research was showing for men in mental health is if you create a safe space, if you model behavior, you know, it's reciprocated. You know, if I share with you what I've been through, if I tell you that, like, you know, I'm presenting all of this on Instagram, but hey, here's the deal, you know? And the more I did that, the more I tapped into what was really happening. Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelly Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. I'm coming at you from LA. Did the road trip, did a bit of Route 66, got out here a couple days ago, set up a little podcast recording studio in my cute little sublet apartment in Playa del Rey. For those of you who are listening and not watching, I've actually got a surfboard behind me. It's part of the decor in the place and it feels so rad and so rebel. And I guess this is sort of the West Coast version of rebel. I'm going with it. Anyway, I'm super excited to be back and loving the lineup of guests that we have for 2021. And it's it's more of the same, you guys, amazing people like really fucking phenomenal conversations with really inspiring people who are rebelling for so many things that are going to change the freaking world we live in. So look out. And today's guest, Addison Brazil, is he's a new friend. He's an old soul. If you get a copy of my newsletter in the January newsletter, Addison was one of the three people that I talked about who had, who became a good friend and had an incredible impact on me down at Modern Elder Academy in Baja, Mexico back in November, which feels so long ago now, but it really wasn't. (laughs) And Addison and I had an immediate connection on on so many different levels and probably one of the deepest levels is our shared passion for normalizing the conversation around mental health. And Addison is very similarly kind of purpose-driven and mission-driven and he's he has an awesome background. He is an actor, he is a model, he is a conscious creator and in probably his most important role right now, he's co-founder of Tether which is an app for men. It's a, a peer support and community app for men to connect with each other and have safe and open conversations around their own mental health and wellness and be there for each other. It's a beautifully curated community. Addison and his co-founder, Matt, are very deeply involved in the community. And I wanted to share all of that because I this is a long conversation and it is a conversation that will change your life and it could be a conversation that saves somebody's life or saves many lives. So as you listen to this, listen for yourself because we get deeply, I mean, first of all, Addison's story will just break your heart 
wide open and you'll understand why he's so incredibly passionate about this purpose and about Tether as a business and about normalizing this conversation. And he gives so much practical advice, great tips on how we can be peer supporters for each other how we can have these conversations. What does that look like? And he guides us through. And honestly, I just, I was blown away because I thought the five pillars he talks about for Tether and the community that they're creating are pillars for life and are pillars for us to be more human and more connected and more there for each other. So I'm going to leave it at that. I, this is this is incredible. And please share this episode. Please share this episode with the men in your life, fathers, brothers, husbands, partners, uncles, sons, friends, colleagues, anyone who, you know, for whom, you know, this would make a difference and could use you know, a support group of men to celebrate the highs and to be there together for the lows and everything in between. I absolutely love what these guys are creating and they're early on in their journey and having incredible success. So let's dive into the conversation with Addison. You won't be disappointed and I'm thanking you in advance for hanging in there. You will get fully absorbed by this conversation. You will learn a lot for your own life and please share it with at least one other person, one other man in your life. Thank you. Enjoy. Before we begin, I want to share an offering from my soul to yours. If you've achieved traditional success only to realize that you're living someone else's dream, then this will start you on a profound journey toward becoming chief soul officer of your own life, just like I did. I'm gifting you a free chapter from my book, Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. It's called Liberating from the Shackles of Should. And if you're ready to, then visit soulbatical.com to download it for free. That's S-O-U-L-B-B-A-T-I-C-A-L dot com. Warning, side effects include intense joy and fulfillment. Hey, Rebel Souls. I'm so excited for this conversation with my new friend who feels like an absolute old friend. Maybe it's because you're such an old soul and we had such an amazing connection down at Baja, which my community keeps hearing probably ad nauseum, keeps hearing me talk about. <laughs> but welcome, Addison Brazil. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And yes, my community also keeps hearing about Baja too much. So I'm with you there. <laughs> I know exactly. But you know what? I think the more people start going down there and they experience it, because it's definitely one of those things where it's like you can hear people talk about it all day long, but you have to be in it, right? Mm -hmm. It's totally experiential. Yep. Magic for sure. Yeah. Magic. That's the perfect word. Magic. So you know how I do this. I love to start with my very favorite question. What are you rebelling for? Yeah, you know, and you'd think because I, I, I'm a listener that I would have overprepared for this. But as you say that, the, the very natural response to that is I'm rebelling for the normalizing of, of true story being shared and, and, you know, unedited, unfiltered, which I know you love, but, but just of truth being shared in an effort to create community. I think that's like sort of just 
where I'm at right now, both creatively and work-wise and personally just, you know, rebelling for you to feel free enough and safe enough to share your story. I love that. I love that. And that's pretty much what's behind this new company that you're a co-founder of, right? That's what's behind. I included you. So for people who are deep in my community, they read about you in my in my January newsletter because I couldn't wait to talk about all the incredible people that I met at MEA. And I shared a little bit of your story in hopes people might start to go down the rabbit hole. But I want to get way deeper into your story. And so what led you on this journey to want to one, share your own story and two, help others feel comfortable and safe enough to share their truth in a really vulnerable way? And what does that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the, the easiest way to describe it is, is, you know, I was this classic sort of overachiever perfectionist type growing up. And I, I guess I just, I, I fell into that trap sort of, a, of what it looked like and, and trying to like, you know, always present, you know, achievement. And, you know, as the universe does it, it had a different plan for me. And, you know, when I was 19 years old in my first year of school, I lost my brother to a brain tumor after four years of watching him battle that. And, you know, obviously watching and sort of co-experiencing that full on ride that, you know, a childhood camp next year who's only two years younger than me, but younger than me. And it was very, very odd to, to be, to learn so much from him. But so I lost my brother. And then three years later, I, I found my dad after his suicide. And so this kind of became this, this second sort of disruptor in my life of just like having to look at my mental health and well-being full time you know, and luckily I did always have people that I could share my story with. And that was a big part of this. And in doing that, I I got to travel around the world and just like really focus on my mental health and well-being. Because to be honest, I just couldn't make sense of a world where before 25, I had lost, you know, essentially all the guys in my family. I mean, my brother and my dad had been gone and there's something so, you know, scary and interesting and educational and heartbreaking, obviously, about losing a parent to suicide, because it just creates this whole, you know, really option that you never really thought existed in such a real way. Like, you know, you never really think of an exit strategy for life in that way until, you know, until you see it. And, and so, uh, you know, long story short, as I went off on, you know, this journey to just try to deal with my PTSD and deal with my compounded grief and and really find a way to not just like survive uh, what I had been through, but thrive. And, and sort of on the cusp of getting there, I was in a very, very catastrophic accident here in Los Angeles that killed one of my dear friends pretty much instantly and left me relearning to walk and sort of just, as I say so often, operate and love and learn and be in the world. Because, I mean, at this point, it was just, you know, it was a lot. I, I hadn't even turned 30, you know, these three major losses. And this one came with losing a lot of my abilities that helped create my balance. And, and that had always been a part of my grief processes in, in staying, you know, balanced. I mean, I could, I was, I'm a runner. I couldn't run. I, I mean, I couldn't walk. I had to learn to walk. I couldn't move. I, you know, I, I don't even know if you know this, Shelly, but I, you know, I danced at a very high level growing up and then 
uh, went to school on scholarship for dance actually. So like, even though I, I wasn't dancing as much anymore or, choreogra or doing choreography in that world, like movement has always been such a part. And I didn't know that till it was taken away. And, and there's something about just being in chronic pain that's like no other challenge that I can ever really explain. Cause you know, there was the, the trauma elements and the compounded PTSD, but just this signal of pain going from my hip into my shoulder, into my head and the concussion syndrome symptoms, just, you know, I had never, never suffered like in a physical way, that quality of life issue before. And I got real quiet. I got quiet. You know, I had a really good support system, but I got real quiet. And, and when it got to that point I, I, that I sort of fell into, you know, what would be the first time in my life, despite all those challenges, a true depression, a, a, you know, a suicidal depression where I just, I found myself like really at 29 years old, 30 years old, just going like quality of life questions, you know, and, 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 it, and luckily I did have a support system where I could share this. And I shared it with, with my doctors at the time. I shared it with my coach. I shared it with my, my mom, my sister, family members, and my close friends, you know, saying like, I'm really considering another option here. And I don't know if that's because it has been introduced to me in such a traumatic way with my dad, that it's something, you know, people kept saying like, do you think about suicide often? You know, I say this, but when you find your dad after his suicide, you think about suicide about a hundred times a day. Yeah, and it's very hard to decide if that's suicidal ideation or if that's being obsessed with suicide because you know, the man who brought you into this world and that you thought would always be there to protect you, you know, that's, that's how he, he came to pass. And, you know, obviously with a lot of education and a lot of learning in the mental health space, you know, I, you know, I now say my dad died of suicide. You know, he didn't commit suicide. He didn't kill himself. He didn't make this decision to no longer be here with me. You know, that's something that, that happens to you. And, um, and so anyways, in, in finally sort of this full circle moment of dealing with my own sort of suicidal depression at the time, um, 32 years old, just like went back to where my mom lived out at the time on the ocean and just said, okay, here's your chance. My mom was a very young mom and it was like, I want to, I'm in a really bad spot and I can't achieve out of this one. I can't, you know, think myself out of this one. I'm, I'm really stuck here. I, I'm really like at a crossroads of challenges and I'm tired. And there was a part of me that was scared that if I presented strength that I would be tested again. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wasn't strong enough for another test. It, you know, I got, I got, I was, I was just, I was, I was tired. And, and during that time, I reconnected with a friend of mine, his name's Matt Zerker, who I went to high school with in Toronto and we weren't friends really. We just knew of each other. He was a year older than me. And he had posted about losing a friend on Facebook actually. Uh, and I just read his post and I was just like, he gets it he's in, he's in the mud, he gets it. So it was kind of weird. And like, honestly, even five years ago, like, I'll be honest with you. It's like, I, I was like, I don't want him to think like I'm being weird or like hitting on him or like something. I don't know. Like, but I was just like, Hey buddy, like I saw your post and you know, I get what you're going through. And if you'd like to talk to somebody else, who's like not a therapist, not, you know, professional at all, but just like a listener, I'd, I'd love to chat. And he did, he wanted, he wanted to talk like right away kind of thing. And and so we built this really cool kind of peer relationship where we were both going to the ends of the world to feel good, both dabbling and learning and, and sort of living in this suicidal depression. And Matt was one of the very first people, I call it the Matt moment, because it was so transformational in my life and obviously the seed of why I decided to join him in, in the company. But 
when he, he told me without any shame that he didn't want to live anymore, but he didn't want to die. Mm. And I was like, no one has ever said that to me. That is how I have felt for the last however many months. I'm really trying to find a way to be here, but I can't say that, you know, that, you know, I want to be. And it was just like having a, you know, another guy, you know, say that to me, especially someone in high school that you really like four years walking the same hallways, like we never connected, we never, you know, like, it was just kind of like, you know, nods at best and being at the same parties and whatnot. So to have this 10 years later come full circle. And he at the time quit his his lucrative hedge fund job, you know, he had a sabbatical. Uh, he really <laughs> did. He, you know, he went, he went to Bali, he, you know, w- w- got into men's groups, and I was in a men's group at the time. And and it was weird. And talking back and forth, we realized he was searching for the community that that I had to realize that I always had extremely mm-hmm. privileged and extremely lucky. I mean, I was just I always say this, but I feel like the most well supported person on Earth. And I say that not to brag in any way, but to say and I still got to that point where I was considering not being here. So in, in learning that with him you know, this idea of building a community and, and showing up to the men's mental health crisis, you know, pre-COVID, talking about 75% of all suicides being male, 75% of men saying that they have stress, anxiety, or depression, but only four, and 40% saying that they would only ask for help if they were inflicting self-harm or suicidal. So it's like with- So the with very the end of the journey, right? Right, when, when like, as we know, you're in crisis, that's no longer, you know, so that, that's, that's very limited to crisis resources. So, you know, we were like, okay, we got to close this gap. And obviously I have very personal reasons, losing my father and a number of other people to suicide in my twenties for wanting to be a part of that. And it was just this weird thing. I had started a nonprofit organization and a charity for, uh, for children with brain tumors when my brother was, was palliative and he sort of was part of building that. And we built it all off. He couldn't speak at the time, his thumbs up or thumbs down. And I'd come to him mm. and be like, how do you want to do this? Cause he had showed interest in that. And so you know, I was here, I was sort of like, you know me, Shelly, it's hard to explain what I do for a living because I'm such an intentional multi-hyphenate, but I, you know, I was writing, event producing, doing all these different things, real estate, because, you know, it's my fantasy football uh, and I want people <laughs> to do it more consciously, but, but doing all these different things and going, okay, so eventually I'm going to get to this point where I create a mental health charity of some sort. Like that's where it felt like it could go. And for some reason, I seem to think I'm a Kennedy with a trust fund and, you know, I can just do charity work and somehow have the quality of life that I've always wanted. So when Matt came up with this idea for this app, I was just like, it really clicked for me because him bringing it up made me, it helped him to realize that's what he's always needed and wanted. And a lot of men identify with that. And for me, it it helped me with an immense amount of gratitude to go, that's been the glue. That's why I've always been here. You know, that's the, the community. It's like the t- it wasn't, you know, it, of course, in addition to all the professional help I came, I received. But when I could come to someone, a safe person in my life and be truly honest, those were the moments that saved me. I remember when I told my sister the first time I was suicidal, I said, OK. And, and she like and she did a lot of what we do now. She said, OK. And she sat with me and then we talked about it and she said, OK, well, I'm going to be here like, you know, for the next 24 hours, like, you know, we're going to be here and, and let's just make decisions together, you know, but there was no, there was no panic. There was no like calling SWAT teams and like this thing you have in your head about like straight jackets and like, cause men still carry that stigma 100%, you know? And I always say it's actually hard to get admitted psychiatrically. Like it's actually like, it's actually difficult. Like I was at a point when I was suicidally depressed where I was telling multiple people on my, on my, Team, I call them because after the accident, I literally had a team of doctors and physical therapists and, you know, all these things. And, 
you know, telling everyone on my team, like, I think I'm, I think I'm losing this here. I think I'm losing this here. I feel like we're in a seven game series and it's game seven. And like, no one is realizing we're down four. Like, like, I'm just not, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to come through here. And it's like, you know, there, there's a scale and there's professionals that help you really understand where you are, you know, suicidally. And that helped me so much. I thought it took me so long to call a crisis line during that month when I was with my mom. But there was something, there's something about being in a room with your mom and just feeling like you have to leave the room. And then when I would leave the room, and I can never tell this, it's so funny, I can talk about everything, but this specific memory just gets me every time. But you know, I was sitting with my mom and I just couldn't stand to be around her and, and I would, couldn't figure out why. And then I would leave the room and I would go into my bedroom and I would close the door. And I realized that it was because I was so, I felt so guilty that even with my mom, the most loving being that I had ever known and the safest person that I knew that when I went in that room, I couldn't, I couldn't pretend anymore that I didn't want to be here. And that I felt so, so bad that there was a chance that in my own mother's home that I would, that I would come to that end, like just, oh, like I just, to this day, it's just, I remember laying in that bed and just thinking, you can't do that. And it's like, okay, but someone has to explain to her that I'm just in pain all the time. And it's so much loss and so, so much of what I thought I was here to do just feels impossible. And I, I, I just, if she could, and I just remember thinking like, if she could just feel my pain for an hour, she would let me go. I remember it being so logical, you know, and everybody was worried about me all the time. And I, I did feel like a burden. And, and this is somebody who read every book on suicide after losing their father to suicide, who knows that you're never a burden, who knows that like, you know, but it just, it got there and it got to this scary place. And so in that, in that moment, as things tend to happen, as you know, like, something sort of beautiful was starting to grow out of that. And I was at the point where, you know, I sort of, you know, if you take everything I was doing, it was kind of like I was becoming this conscious consultant or concierge of sorts, where I was working with people and building ideas and having clients and doing events and, and trying to move to everything just a little bit more consciously at the time. And I'm sort of the guy that's like, oh, I have an idea for a TV show. So you come and you tell me and you like, you hope that maybe I'll write it for you. You know, so I was like, I had a lot of that, especially like in LA. And I was like, so when Matt came to me with the app, I was just like, you know what? I just made this promise to myself. Like I only, I, I'm doing phase two. I love your idea, but you got to go put some skin in the game and come back with something. Cause like, yeah, us, us two non-tech people having an idea for an app that can save the world. What is that equal? You know, like, let's be serious. Yeah. We needed someone in product, someone in dev. Like, I mean, it's just not, you know, us chatting about this on and on is expelling energy that probably should go into making sure this exists because it's clearly this was Matt's passion. And, you know, this, I have to say, this does not happen. I mean, I've said this to so many people who come to me with an idea, but Matt, you know, called, you know, we stayed in touch as peer supporters. And, you know, when he called and said, okay, I have a CTO, he's building the app and I have a head of product, he's designing the app and the tech parts built out. And I said, okay, like, you know, as promised, Addy Connect, whatever I can do, to make sure this happens. I'm with you. And I just, I just was going to be a, a champion. And, you know, they had the app and they had the idea and they had the in, very initial branding, like a website and whatever. And, you know, I realized that they needed to build a community. And mm. that's sort of, I mean, if you look at my life, because of these diversions, you know, who knows, maybe I, you know, would have been on more 30 under 30 lists with how, you know, how I operate in the world or, you know, won certain awards or whatever, if I had steered straight on that achievement path, but I've been happy, who knows, because I learned a lot along the way. But, you know, I just, if I really think about 
why I'm here. And if you ask me, like, what are you the most proud of? It's none of those things, really. It's the community that I've cultivated over my lifetime. I mean, it's just like, it's like, that's why I'm here. I mean, it's literally why I'm here. You know, it's just, I love and know so many people so deeply. And, and they've, like, so many people have been so generous. I mean, like yourself and everybody we met in Baja, like, just to really connect and really allow their sort of true selves to come forward after that initial sort of like businessy front or whatever it is, like the LA shtick, whatever it is, like I seem to have this sort of key that makes people, you know, feel safe. And, and when, the, when we started to build Tether, you know, I, I, I had to really spend a lot of time thinking about that and what was that. And, and it was the same as all the research was showing for men in mental health is if you create a safe space, if you model behavior, you know, it's reciprocated. You know, if I share with you what I've been through if I tell you that, like, you know, I'm presenting all of this on Instagram, but hey, here's the deal, you know, and the more I did that, the more I tapped into what was really happening. And I had a real challenge of it because I was like, you know, modeling and acting in LA and they, you know, you were expected to put up this front of this good looking life in every way imaginable. Yeah, the Instagram front, am, like, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And so it was like something I could really look at and like, well, what would a safe space really look like? And so I, I started like with a meeting with Matt and then it was a day of the week and then it was five days of the week. And then it was like quite clearly I was going to join them as a co-founder and, and build the brand and make sure that the, the impact driven community was created. And, and I have, this was a COVID pivot. I was at my family's cottage on the lake and going, what am I going to do? I mean, everything, everything I did, everything I fed off both socially and and I just like found a way to not die, you know, and then so I was sort of in this, this isolation, especially emotionally, but with my accident, I was also like physically in one place. So I did this whole recovery, you know, and, and got through, got through it. I, I don't, it's, it's a miracle. It's mindset. It's finally getting the right people working with me in my body. But I went from 95% suicidal pain to it doesn't affect my daily life right now. It's, you know, and I am like beyond so, so grateful. And if anyone listening to this is dealing with chronic pain, like I just take a moment to honor you because I just know that signal is just, it takes a very strong person and, and you really do have to have a community around that. But, but yeah, like I lived in this sort of isolation. So in some ways you could say like the benefit of that is I was sort of more prepared than others for this lockdown because I felt like I'd been locked down. But then on the other end, I felt like I was finally about to pick things up and the world locked down. And I know you know how that feels too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With when your when your book came out, you know, it was like, I'm ready to go. And they were like, you know, building these connections. And every time I went out, I was making a meaningful connection because I was finally showing up as myself. And then it was like, no more going out, going go into the cottage for for I think we did initially like 17 weeks straight where I didn't see anyone but who I was quarantining with. And that's when Tether was really starting to be built. And it was just like, I'm very fortunate that my COVID pivot has become like saying this to our, our friend Jeremy on the phone. Like, I just, I can't figure it out, but I just love my job. Mm. I just love my job. And I just like everything, like every part of it, because it's all driven around like making this impact. And it's I guess purpose see driven the community. Yeah. 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 Well, it's purpose driven yeah. and it's, it is, it's part of your story. And what you're doing is saying, I've been through this. You're sharing your story so openly, so vulnerably, and you're helping others to connect. I love you. I wrote down this term that you use. You said you and Matt were peer supporters. 
And I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't heard it expressed that way, but I want to, can we dive into that a little bit? Because I'm, I'm yeah. guessing that's yeah. part of what the community of Tether is built on. What does it mean yep. to be a peer supporter? And what does that look like? Like, how can more of us be peer supporters? Because I feel like we live in a world that is so disconnected right now. And then you layer COVID on top of that. So how do more of us create the community? that we need to thrive? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and yeah, I'm okay. So peer supporter, first off, is like, obviously, you have, you know, so many people with coaching certifications. And, you know, there's, there's so many ways to approach a well being journey. And so what Matt and I have set out to do, like the way we met with each other, and I always like to just, you know, put it out there that like the tech side of our team, you know, obviously, the app doesn't exist without them. So the unsung heroes, Burke White and Denny Park, who built this thing that we sort of are spokespeople and, you know, use our story to, to attract more people. But, you know, we, we kind of, the four of us have this sort of pact about being peer supporters to the highest possible level. So without ever getting a coaching certification, without ever, you know, you know, obviously like I thought about going back to school and becoming a psychologist. I, I mean, we have these thoughts, right? Especially when we're trying to save ourselves, we think about saving other people. Yeah. And I think even my interest in wanting to be a coach during that very challenging time after the accident definitely was born of that, you know, but then there was, there's something for me and Matt, there's something more about taking this to the highest possible level without stepping out of the community ourselves. So peer support, I think the most important thing to think about when you think about peer support is that it's the intention to show up fully and to assist somebody else or to be assisted. And it's a balanced, meaning that at any point you become the supporter or the one getting supported. It, mm. That balance is so important because if we become fixers rather than, you know, co-supporters where we're both helping each other on our journey, that's a very different relationship. And the reason I say boundary driven is what we're realizing is a lot of being a peer supporter, we think, okay, I'm, I just need to show up for this person. You know, I just need to fix this. I just need to be there for this person. And what we really encouraged all the guys to do, stop, take a deep breath, mm-hmm. do your one word check-in and ask, am I in a place to support somebody else right now? And if the answer is no, celebrate, celebrate that awareness. No. And the next, the, the next step on that little diagram, you know, when it's like, yes, go this way. No, it goes this way. Right. If it's no, Letting them know, hey, this is where I'm at right now, but I'm sure that we can find someone together that can support you, you know, in the way that you need. And, and so those boundaries, it's like we think about a lot of the time, you know, boundaries being about putting on someone else. You know, I'm putting this boundary on you, but boundaries are really for us, right? So it's hundred percent because, right. And if it's not, if it's not there to kind of protect the you know, beautiful ecosystem that peer support can be, then nobody's helping anybody. You know, we're just sort of taking on each other's stress and feeling worse that we're not, you know, fixing them. So that that's the other thing is create the boundary in your head, create that, that switch in your head. And this is your friends, your family, whoever, and you can even verbally say it. And a lot of people are like, really? I'm like, yes. Yeah. Hey, just so you know, state it. I'm showing up to you as a peer right now. I want to be here for you as fully as possible. I'm not approaching this in any effort to fix you. I don't expect mm-hmm. you to be fixed by the end of this conversation, but I will honor the fuck out of this journey with you. You know, let's, let's talk. And, 
And then we kind of go into, we've started to build, and this is sort of like a keynote talk that we get to do. And, and we started to build as this like the peer support guys is these five pillars of peer support. And I think that these, these pillars for me, they just are a constant reminder. And so much of it happens just in the way you set up the safe space. And that's what they're there to do. So the first one is just acknowledgement. Like start with acknowledgement. If you have the privilege in this day and age of being, you know, in a room with someone, of course, that can just be eye contact and body language and the way you show up, letting them know like you're safe, you're open, you know, and you're listening and just say, I'm, I'm, I hear you and I'm here to listen, you know, and, and letting them know that they're safe. And then that kind of segues right into the second one, which is active and empathetic listening. Mm -hmm. And this is so important as we know, and I know you talked about this down in Baja as well, but but to be truly actively listening is a skill and it's a skill we have lost. It's a lost oh, art. I mean, it's something we're not taught. Think about it. If active yeah, and empathetic true. listening was taught from kindergarten onwards, mm -hmm. we would live in a very different society than we do today. We would. And, and, and so much support right now. I mean, you've seen it. I know I've seen it. I know I've done it and I, I continue to learn every day, but Someone shares something with you and you say, oh, yeah, I know all about that because and then you talk about how you know about when your heart was broken or how you know about, you know, and it's instantly the safe space is instantly switched, you know, and it's like, whereas with active and empathetic listening, you're really there. And I, like I come from the acting world and I think, you know, like I went all the way through the groundlings, which is like, you know, you get to a point where you're improving a whole show yeah. based off one word, you know, yeah. and let me tell you, there's there is no way to be a successful actor or be an successful improviser without listening, because it's just like, it, it literally kills the scene and it literally kills people. They need to be yeah. heard, you know? Yeah. And I, it's just these, these correlations, it's so weird. Like if you told me the groundlings and, and Tether, you know, like this was all going, this was all amounting oh my to God. My, and my resume, you know? Totally, <laughs> well, and you read this in my book too, right? I was like, mm -hmm. who knew that studying at Second City and learning the basics of improvisation, listening, mm -hmm. yes, and, you know, full yes, on and, presence, yeah. you know, being present and collaboration. These are life skills that I had no mm -hmm. idea. And I love that you're seeing that as well. I tell everybody yeah. I can, oh, I'm yeah. like, just go take an improv class. It will help you in life in ways you can't imagine. And also like that skill of, you know, I could go on forever about this, but that skill about how I use my improv skills just for, for real life, but the skill of realizing you cannot prepare for improv, you are going to get one word. And the only thing that's then going to help you is to follow the guidelines, which like you said, listening, yeah. yes, and not negating or shutting other people down, yeah. you know, showing interest. So it's like, it's so interesting, but it's like, these are the basics of how to have a meaningful conversation. And learning that, like I what you 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 see it. It's like somebody makes like an a, like shut someone down and thinks it's funny, and the audience is crickets in an improv show. It's just like because it it the, like we want to go with it. We want to be a part of it, and it's like nobody wants to watch two people fight. You right. know what I mean? Or right. not, it's a momentum you know, and energy killer. Yeah, right, right. It is, well, you, and it's like it, it's so for real life too. You know, it is. Well, what was really powerful just on this before you go through the other three? What yeah. really mm -hmm. struck me is when you were telling the story, part of your story earlier, when you said you admitted to your sister that you were having these suicides. Thoughts and she simply listened. 
Mm. And I, I'm getting goosebumps again. I had goosebumps as you were telling that story. And it makes me feel really emotional because how many times, you know, I, I can imagine many times where people have been like, oh, you're okay. It's all fine. Mm-hmm. The world, you know, the world's still spinning. Be grateful for X, Y, and Z. And it's like, that's not what you need in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it just really struck me. I took a note on that because I wanted to come back to the power of listening and you beautifully brought us there, but we cannot overstate how important this is in our lives, in our relationships, in our connection. Whew. It makes me yeah, really emotional I mean, talking about my it. My sister, like, you know, she didn't run a, a peer support app. So, you know, she, right. it was just, it was, my sister and I are like twins and that is such a cool thing because we actually have this relationship where we, we don't finish sentences and we don't like, we just know, you know, so I mean, and it's so, it's so interesting that you said that because being so in tune with where I was at, she knew before I said anything that it was not good. I mean, she had flown in from Australia. So, I mean, I got Ooh, the idea, yeah. you know, so she was there with me and, and we went actually to this hotel in Santa, sorry, in San Diego in La Jolla you know, we went and we just, we went for five days and it was like, that was sort of, you know, like a retreat, like a sabbatical. And we were just going to take it slow. And, and she knew in that moment that she just intuition knew that if she tried to fix it, if she tried to convince me otherwise, if she did anything other than honor my journey and let me be the expert of my experience, that it was not going to go well. And, you know, and and so she just kept listening and, and, and then, you know, it's like, and then finally after hours, she said, okay, so I totally understand everything you're saying. And, you know, she used my own words, which we'll get into. And, you know, I learned so much of this experientially from her doing this. And then, and then it was like, you know, for instance, one of the things that really stressed me out is obviously, you know, the, the money aspect of things when you're after the accident. And, you know, and we, she just so brilliantly started to separate the things that were going to be sort of a long-term spiritual and mental well-being journey and the things that she knew she could help with right, you know, and she has like five finance degrees and like, you know, it was just, and, and she, you know, she just so lovingly pointed me towards what was actionable, Mm. you know, and what she could help with and, and what she truly understood and fully like, I, you know, of course she, she did not want me not here, but she would not pretend that she didn't get where I was at, you know? And that was very hard for my family because they are just kind of like, even, you know, with the loss of my dad, I was the one who found him. So it was a totally different thing for me than, than everybody else in that way. And it was sort of this weird thing of being the only man versus like all the girls stayed in the family when two sisters and my mom. So it's this weird thing. But anyway, I just want to say, you know, it, it's what I'm saying is that it's in there. If you trust that intuition of what somebody really needs and just yeah. like a, a quick, quick cheat, it's usually not to hear about how you know about their experience. It's just, yeah. it's just usually you, not, you know? Yeah. And what you said, I love the phrase, like honor that person's journey. And mm-hmm. I, I introduced you to Houston craft and I think you guys had a yes. conversation and he defines yes, when is. he talks about what deep kindness means, he talks, he defines empathy and he's like, empathy is standing in the rain together. You don't have to know exactly what that person is, you know, is experiencing. You may never have been on that journey in your entire life. It is literally standing and getting fucking wet together with that human. 
And there's something so powerful in that. So I kind of, I tied that to your active and empathetic listening because Mm -hmm. we don't have to have been on the journey. I think we often shy away from things where it's like, oh shit, well, I've never had suicidal thoughts. I've never experienced the loss of a father. I've never, you know, X, Y, Z. And the reality is that's not a requirement. No. And I love the rain idea because- you don't have to talk about the rain. You don't have to figure out the rain. You don't have to, you just be in the rain and you get the, the simple part of being in the experience with somebody else and sitting with them. I mean, we call it in my family, it's like weird. We call it pocket pal where we like our friends, like they would come over for hours at a time. And like our house was that house that you could just walk into and it was always unlocked. And it's kind of like this, this idea of like, you can just be together and spend time together and be in the experience of it. And we had to do that. I mean, cause we were, grieving on such a high level. I mean, like people were constantly coming over and you, you cannot after traumatic losses and like, and I can speak from experience with three of them, you cannot go into it with everybody. Mm. You cannot seek to be understood, especially on a daily basis. You just end up exhausted. It's like doing a press tour of grief. It's just, right. it's not, Oof. you know, it's, it's not sustainable, yeah. you know, and that's, that's a big word they learned. So I know that we could totally go there. So acknowledgement and active listening are obviously something that you know, you introduce very quickly in the conversation. And, and from that active listening, the third pillar is, is, to, is to ask questions. The thing about asking questions is, is that you want to use the person who's sharing's word. You want to use their language. So, you know, this is, I use this classic example, but it's like, you know, I've, I've called people before and said, like, this is it, like, so-and-so just will not let me succeed here. Like, I quit, I give up. Like, you know, we've all had that phone call once or twice before and they say, oh yeah, I get it. And they sort of egg you on or whatever. And you leave and you're like, kind of like, mm. so I had a masterful coach that I think I told you the story, Shelly, that I met magically on a plane during all of that. And, and Jennifer Merrifield is her name. And she is just so brilliant out of Toronto. And she, she was one of the first people to, to do this to me. And I don't know, everybody in some ways too, this is where the boundaries come in everybody kind of let me be the expert too much, like where Mm. they weren't using my own language and holding me accountable to what I was actually saying. And so the first time, so it's like the same kind of thing goes and they go, I'm so sorry to hear that you can't do this and that you won't succeed and that you're giving up. Do you want help writing your resignation letter? And it's like, I'm not giving up. What are you talking about? I've never given up anything in my life. I'm going to, you know, and it's like- And then the achiever comes to life again. Yeah. And it's like, but all you did was instead of paraphrasing it and sort of like adding gasoline to the fire under the guise of fixing and understanding, all you did was respond to me with my own language so that I had to then show up to my own experience, or at least how I was telling the story. Because we don't often hear. Yeah. It's like, I talk about in the book about the shoulds, right? It's Mm -hmm. another example Mm -hmm. of, we don't hear oftentimes what we're actually saying and language matters. So to be able to call that out and not in a shaming or judging way, but simply call it out. You're right. We need help. That's, that's beautiful reflection. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, if somebody says, you know, the other thing is too, that I realized in this time, especially when I, when I was doing so much coaching, because I felt like I was misunderstood all the time. And, and my coach would always say, okay, well, we teach people how to treat us, you know? So, so let's, let's talk about your part in that. And that's been such a big part of honestly, my happiness, like just bringing it over to me. It sounds like a lot on you, but then it's like very, very freeing. And it's like, you have to start asking questions like, okay, 
I'm assuming when you say, when someone says to me, I can't go on anymore, I'm putting that into my brain and my experience and what that means to me. That's dangerous. Shelly, what does I can't go on anymore mean to you? Because it just might mean that you're done for the day and you're going to order a pizza and that's that. You know what I mean? Like, or what does like heartbroken mean to you? Because my experience of heartbroken isn't really serving you in this moment. And if I'm really showing up to support you, I need to ask more questions and, and based on your language. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And, and one thing that we've learned that really is effective is focusing on how come questions versus why. Why triggers the story. A victim mentality is very easy to come out of why. They, they can intellectually explain to you why they got to this point. And you can guess that it involves a lot of other people uh, making them feel a certain way. But also if you ask how come, you know, how come you're feeling this way? And, and then it's about their experience. And you ask how, how does that feel literally in your body right now? And it's like, so it, it allows processing rather than reiterating a story that is not serving anyone. I leave feeling like I didn't help you. You leave just with a reiterated victim story. And it's like, you know, it's just, and it's just these little simple language swaps. And I know you're such a geek like I am with all these things because I, oh, yeah. I love the power of language. And the power but, of yeah. mindset because language mm-hmm. is mindset. Yes. If you tell yes. yourself you can't, then you can't. Yeah. If you tell it, yourself it, you it, can, sure. you can. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so much of that, it's, it's such a practice for such a long time. And it seems silly and it seems ho- hokey. But even just, you know, we've talked about this, obviously, you know, we both are obsessed with what should should and get to and need and get to and have to and get to and you know me going through seeing you know the death of so many people and I mean that quite literally like I saw the death saw death you know and like was like I was forced to deal with the finality of that and in like this experience what I've realized though is that I'm actually not that isolated I just have the most tangible finality in my experiences. These Mm. people have been lost and they're not coming back. And in a way I have a hard wall that I can push off against and find, you know, a way to go. People, I realized everyone around me was grieving. They just weren't getting the license to call it that. What you thought your twenties were going to be, what you thought your degree was supposed to be, who you thought your first love was going to be. I mean, we're just, we're all grieving and we're all in these grief processes all the time. And I actually was in a way, in a mental health way, privileged to have sort of public trauma that everyone sort of understood on some sort of level that I would be grieving because it got to be honored in a very different way. We're not, we're not prone to honor the journey of, you know, the, the relative grieving that's happening all the time. I mean, we're all grieving right now. This is not what we plan. I mean, to be locked in and confused and, you know, all the things that are happening. It's like so many people, they can't put words around it. And they think grief is just surrounded around a physical death of someone you knew or a loved one. But grief is, is just honoring the relationship you thought something going to be, you know, the yeah. plan that you had versus what, mm-hmm. what was going to happen. And there's, there's, and I, I just, I, I realized that and I just, I want to commend people that they're, they've grieved so much too, you know? I'm glad you brought that up because I think there's, yeah, it's like we tell ourselves a story, like we don't give ourselves permission to grieve all of the losses grieve. Like there's human loss, there's job loss, there's financial loss, there's heartbreak loss. There's all of the things you mentioned a lot of them. And, you know, there's, there's just even loss of the way things used to be the loss of hugging right now. 
Like there's grief involved. So give, giving ourselves permission. I don't know. Do you guys use that language and talk about that in your community? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, my tagline, it like, I think we're all getting to the point where we know my book is going to be called honor the journey, but you know, like, cause I use it so often, but, but it's also because that, that was born out of condolences doing absolutely nothing for me. I always felt like condolences were for other people and they put something on me that I didn't want or like, Mm. or what their thought, you know, and I know everybody, obviously, like from a mindset perspective, I know everybody was, you know, doing what you do. But for me, it's like, okay, well, if that really bothered you, then don't say sorry for your loss, or, you know, don't say those things that were said to you. And so that's why when people come to me, and they say, like, you've dealt with so much death, I just don't know how to support this friend. And I always say, first of all, I have no idea how to help you because every grief process is so specific and so authentic to the relationship. I mean, it, it, it's and how that person operates in the world and how they deal with loss, you know, and that's why it, it sounds kind of blanket, but it's also so specific to say, honor the journey. And don't be afraid to tell people that like, I laughed hysterically, hysterically, both limo rides to the churches of both my brother and my father's funeral. I mean, to a point where my ex-girlfriend that was in, the limo and the one time was like you guys are terrible like it's just some like hbo you know comedy drama shit but it's like that's what happens and you know people would see me and my sister and they thought we were and trust me i also did enough crying for everybody but you know the, at times people think we're hyperventilating and we were laughing so hard because it was so far from reality yeah of anything we ever thought that we were literally hysterically laughing you know, and that, that was judged. I mean, the, we come from a Portuguese Catholic family. I mean, that was just like something you shouldn't be doing. You know, there's right. that should, you know, and it's like, uh, no, I just found my dad after his suicide three years after losing my brother to cancer. I get to laugh, cry, kick, scream, honor it. And this is where I think it's so cool that we're having this conversation because sometimes when we do these talks, we skip to, well, it's a mindset, but you mm. have to, like you said, give yourself permission process and honor the journey first. You don't skip that. That's not a thing you skip. And then mindset around it. You know, I can now play what I call the benefit game with the deaths and losses of my life. I can now see how in a world where I cannot change someone else's life curriculum or when they're going to leave the earth, if we put that aside and we put its own corner, and then we look at how how this has benefited me, how I have learned more as a person, you know, I can do that from a mindset point of view. But whenever someone tried to put that on me while I was still in a deep grief, because, you know, grief doesn't go anywhere and I never want to perpetuate that. You just build on and honor the relationship on a daily basis with the loss. But whenever somebody would be like, you know, it's at, you know, everything happens for a reason. I, I almost went Ooh. to jail for murder. It's oh, yeah. like, so the reason that I get to be successful in LA, my brother literally gives his life like, no. And I'm a, like, I mean, I'm a highly intellectual debater so it's like you do not like do not like it's never for me but for someone else and my dad and my brother obviously just so protective of that I'm like so let me get this straight I'm gonna write an award-winning movie because so they died so that you know and I just would get so mad so it's like I always say this like you have to like you said give yourself permission and yes we set an set an allotted time everybody kind of is like what it's like set an allotted time you know I am going to feel this angry and I do it. I literally set an alarm and it's something my coach helped me learn. Like, you know what? I am not having today. The pity party begins now. 
it ends at 9 p.m. when my alarm goes off and I am going to switch back into, you know, ride the scale from my victim mentality into more survivor mentality and hopefully get to thriver by the end of the night. But I'm going to honor the shit for the next two hours or I'm going to cry my fucking eyes out until the tears stop and then we're going to continue. But it's like, you know, giving yourself permission to do that and realizing that like it's processing, it's effective. It's why we pay therapists and coaches to help us Mm. facilitate that unlocking so of it to, true. To process, you know, I love this. I, it's, so it's I, I'm struggling to remember who the woman was, but I heard this woman tell a powerful story about her own journey with stage four cancer. And mm. the interviewer was asking her like, well, how do you wake up and deal with like that hanging over you every day? And she mm. said, I gave myself exactly 20 minutes every morning to have a pity party. And when that same thing, when that alarm went off, I went, okay, whether I cried, I laughed, I curled up in a ball, you know, under the covers, whatever I needed to do for those 20 minutes, I honored that. And I gave myself permission. Mm -hmm. And she said, the interesting thing is that as she went on and on, she really only took about five of the minutes. And some mornings she was like, I don't really want to have a pity party because I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm doing well. And I just think there's so many, we can apply that to so many different things in our lives. We don't have to have a terminal illness. We don't have to have loss, but you know what? If you want to have a pity party, give yourself permission to have a pity party, Mm -hmm. but put a time limit on it. Like you just said, it's beautiful. Yeah. Be protective of your power. I mean, if it goes Mm. into weeks of you saying, you know, I did, I used to do this, Shelly. I mean, like I'll call people and be like, because it was part of my shtick. I mean, also like, it's hard because, you know, a writer and a performer and whatever, but it's like, okay, you ready for the Addison of the week? Like, you know, of course I got rear-ended while trying to help the children at the children's hospital. Like it was that sort of narrative. Like, it's just like, and I would laugh hysterically. I would laugh. Like, it wasn't like I was, you know, the world's against me, but I was. And I had to come to terms with that, even if I put humor around it, that I was still perpetuating and not protecting, you know, it's like, well, how did you really feel about getting sideswiped on your way at 5 a.m. to volunteer at the children's <laughs> hospital to usher terminal ill patients? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? I need 20 minutes because that kind of pisses me off. And like, you know, like that, that, that happened. And it's like, when I started to do that, where it's like, be careful. And I just started to be more protective of my power. I don't need to tell 10 people about every time a bird shits on me. I don't need to, you know, there, there's other things that I can do. And if that's what we're talking about, I like, you know, I'd rather listen. I'd rather learn. I'd rather, you know, what, what would serve me more in it? It's like, it's like, it's so important to just, you know, really honor that. And, and like, like that, that woman you spoke of, I found that too, that the more that it's become, the more that I know inherently that I would honor that that I will have the pity party, there's less need for it to happen because I know I'm allowed if I need it, you know? Yeah. I want it. I get to. I get to. (laughs) Yeah. I I tell my clients the same thing. I say, I say, so my clients who are worriers. So this, this works for so many things Mm -hmm. that suck our energy. And so clients who are worriers, it's like, great, put a little worry appointment on your calendar for 20 minutes or half an hour, worry the shit out of everything and then let it go. So we can use this in so many different ways that just start to just stop that loop that can Mm -hmm. honestly just drains all of our creative energy. Yeah. And yeah, then the mental thinking you are mentally preparing by running every possible scenario until you're exhausted so that 
by the time you're at the opportunity, you're so exhausted, you can't show up fully. It's just, it, you get to a point where we talk about this all the time, Matt and I, when we have our founders talks, it's like, we get, we're getting to this point and in our journeys, we got to a point where we were too smart to be dumb. Mm. We, when you get to a point where you go, this actually just isn't going to serve me. Like this just actually is not helpful at all to go into this victim mode for the next three days about something like this. It's just, it doesn't, I can't take it to court. I can't prove it. I'm not going to get an indictment on me being the, you know, the most under whatever in the world. Like, it's just like, and I start, I really do think like that. And I love also what you said about, cause I, you know, my sense of humor has to be a part of everything because it's just, it's me. And, you know, I, I want to normalize mental health conversation, but as I said in the beginning, authentically as who you are. And so my humor is such a big part of that. And when my coach went through this with me, the way that, you know, this might be helpful for some people, the way that I thought about it is both understanding when other people were sort of stuck in a victim mindset, but also when I would get to that point is I think about it a lot like a baby. We don't expect right away the baby to be able to go to the bathroom, obviously, or feed itself or know why it's crying or any of those reasons. And it sort of is this light way of like having fun Relationship with myself, whereas, oh, the baby needs a diaper change. And that's how I think about myself when I was starting to get, you know, in that place. Or, you know, it's like, I, I joke, but it's just like, you know, my friends who know about this and my friends who are sort of in that more conscious community with me, it's like, oh, how was your day? And all I have to say is, oh, a lot of babysitting. And they're like, oh, you or other people. And it's like, oh, you know, the baby, it's just like, I can't believe how much this baby needs this diaper change. Like, it's just like, we know, we know how it works. We, you know, they know what the potty is, but like, you know, and you have to, because you would never blame a baby in that yeah. learning process, you know? And it's just, for me, it just works and it allows me to approach it like with a little bit of humor, And it's like with myself where I'm like, I feel myself starting to unravel and I'm like, okay, what is the, and and awesome, awesome. Like just for me, I get hangry and it reminds me too, like, has the baby eaten literally? Mm. Maybe that's why the baby's crying. Like to go back to those, those things that a baby needs, the nourishment, you know, the nurturing that has to exist to feel well-being. Oh my God. What I love, love, I love this whole example because yes, it's authentic and it's a really gentle way to be with ourselves because I think, you know, if we get hangry or whatever happens, we're, we're feeling that sort of victimness. We're just, we're feeling like things are unraveling. We tend to berate ourselves. Mm -hmm. So instead of berating ourselves, you're going, Oh, I'm going to laugh at this because now I get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, oh, it's the baby and the baby. It's such a cool way to be authentic. And of course it's going to be humor for you. It may not be humor for everyone. It's definitely humor for me too. And it's also (laughs) a gentle way instead of beating the shit out of ourselves, which we're so good at doing, it's just a gentle reminder going, oh, right. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Let's just call it out. And then you can course correct. And but it's, being it's, gentle it's with ourselves, like, yeah. Yeah. A beautiful, I was just going to say, because I'm sure the people who listen to your podcast and have read your book, you know, they're, they're probably on some sort of journey. And mm. you start to notice sort of when your mindset starts to shift versus those around you, obviously, that's a, that's a big thing. And I know we've talked about this before, and I won't go into it, but the two lonelies, the lonely that yeah. inspires change, and then the lonely ones you've started to make change, and you want more people that are on that wavelength and looking at life in that way. And there's that second loneliness. And, and I I just, I feel like it's also such a beautiful way to not judge, but discern when you're in those conversations where you're going, okay, this, this person is, you know, really having a hard time with their victim mentality right now. Like the world is against them. 
and you just lovingly kind of nod and do, and we will get back to those pillars, guys. We'll get back yeah, to them. Because yes, yes, four there. and five, you exactly. Do, you, do those, you do that active listening and you do that active and empathetic listening and you start to ask questions using their language, but the whole time you go, oh, the baby, like as soon as someone goes into that mode now in my head, I go, oh, the baby needs their diaper change. And they're, they're this lovable baby and it makes me laugh rather than go, oh, I can't listen to this and sort of like get like, it's, mm. you can get defensive and it doesn't serve anyone, right? Because that's not how they're going to respond. But as we know, if we use their own language and help them to process, you're, you're both going to get somewhere that serves everybody. And But you have to do it from that place of discernment. You get to do it from that place of discernment. That's the thing about neural pathways, guys. Once you start, it's like you, every time you have to correct it. Like it's like, it becomes this thing. But you get to do it from a place of discernment and a place of love where you go, yeah. oh, the baby needs their diaper changed or oh, like and like, I mean, if you're like me, I take it so far where in my head, if that's not working, if that dolls down, it's like, oh, do they need to be burped? And I picture <laughs> myself burping an adult, you know, because it's just so loving. And it's like, that's OK. We, you know, until you let learn. it out, let yeah, it out. Yeah, let's <laughs> burp it out. You know, it's just a no, because that's it with emotional intelligence. It's just like that. And like you said, uh-huh. if we learn this from day one, obviously we would all be able to just, you know, like we're potty trained and like we learn to burp and all these things, but we have to lovingly look at that. Like everyone's on that journey. So that's a big part of, it. and I'm, I'm glad that somehow magically, as it always does, this brings us back to the pillars. <laughs> but, well um, done. So, so we had acknowledgement and we have active listening, which obviously leads into asking questions. And we talked about those types of questions. And so the next, the next one kind of splits, four and five kind of split, and you can do this in an order that you're more comfortable with, but it's very important that as a peer supporter, that you make sure you realize, depending on, and this, all these things work for celebrating too. These work for positive conversations too. And that's always a very good test when you're asking questions, when you're acknowledging the way you're speaking, would this work if this person was in joy? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be investigating their joy. You wouldn't be trying to fix their joy. You'd be honoring it with them, you know, and and same with joy, help them, help them anchor it because we spend so much time anchoring sadness and pain with people. That's like when someone tells you they're having a really good day, oh, Cool, Shelly. What does that feel like in your body right now? Ah, nice. And like, even just saying that and we're faking it, I just felt, you know, from I you. What that I literally, feel like. my, like, my like, smile, oh, my smile got that so you're... big. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that you're feeling that. And we're like, we're not even really, you know, so it's like doing that. I just want to say this isn't for, you know, your support is not for when you're in crisis. I mean, that's the biggest takeaway. And that kind of leads us into the next for yourself as a peer supporter. Make sure to assess if you believe someone is in crisis. And the thing mm-hmm. that, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to crisis resources and doing my own research as a peer, you know, and seeing, you know, what, what they had to say. And, and crisis, I've been advised by many crisis counselors, which I am not, that it is perfectly acceptable and very smart for both parties to just simply ask, do you feel like you are in crisis? Mm. Do you feel that you are a danger to yourself? So a lot of people don't want to ask that question because it seems like, you know, but it's like, I need to know because once again, as per my boundaries, I'm only a peer supporter. So if you need crisis resources, if we need like to help and it's like peer support, the best way to put it. And when you're thinking about in your head is I am here for you before, during and after whatever you need to do to get through process, celebrate, be a part of this moment. And so if your friend broke their arm and clearly needed nerve surgery, you wouldn't get down, find the things that are in your car and start doing that surgery. Like, even if your friend was like, no, you do it. No, you do it. It's like, no, 
I, I'm, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to see. I'm going to call emergency services. I'm I will drive you, you there. Yes, but I will, I will not drive do you the there. I will wait outside if if it's not COVID. You know, outside the yeah. room. I will be at your bed. Like, but I will do everything outside of what is someone who's crisis certified or a doctor to handle. And like, like to the point that I have offered myself to be, I will be on speakerphone when you call the crisis line. I will literally do the call with you, but I cannot be the, the crisis counselor in this moment. And, and doing it that way, letting them decide, you know, and this is to open up, this is not for us to necessarily do, but just so you know, you know, everyone has this kind of idea of what crisis support is like, and, and they do the same thing on a higher level that they're trained to do where, you know, if you say, you know, I, I'm going to end my life tonight, they say, they don't tell you why you shouldn't. They, they say, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that you won't be here tomorrow because they want you to acknowledge and what, what you're saying in your experience and make sure that that's really where you're at, you know, and, and to say, I'm, it's, it's really sad. Like I can see how, you know, it's going to be devastating to have to plan your funeral this weekend for your mother. Like I just, you know, and it's, it's, I believe you. I am not discrediting your experience. You are the expert of your experience. And if you tell me that you are suicidal, then you absolutely are. And we can together find you the crisis resources that you need, you know, and you go back to those boundaries and, and the boundaries and the balance are there to make sure that the entire relationship remains sustainable, mm. you know? So yeah, guy, you know, assessing if it's a no, I mean, if it's just like, I've known Shelly for a while and she, you know, I just know that's not where we're at. You, you always can still ask if you, if you, if you need clarity at all, ask. If in doubt, just ask, you know. But if it's just a normal situation, it's like you skip step four and go to step five, which, Shelly, I'm a human being. And I am like, what is step five? What is the fifth pillar? I love like, it. That's <laughs> question. I'm like, whoa. What the fuck is step moment. five? That's I'm right. Find it'll, out real quick. It'll come to you. Exactly. I was gonna say you've got you've got resources. You've got resources there. I mean, this I is while that. while you're looking. Well, you know what? It is what it is. We're all human. I love yes. that you. I mean, talk about like vulner being vulnerable and transparent and authentic. You just demonstrated it again. It's so funny because like you oh wouldn't God. think this, but I will uh, celebrate this moment because as a perfectionist in the past, mm. I would be like. I can't believe, I mean, this would be a three day waste of time about how I forgot something like this. And it's the oh. simplest one. It's the simplest one. So it's, and this can go before, you know, four or after five, because sometimes assessing if someone's in crisis can, can be fed by this question. But before you decide, so you, you know, and like I said at the beginning, these pillars are all happening very quickly. You can imagine as someone starts yeah. talking, you're acknowledging them, you're actively listening, you begin to ask questions when it's appropriate and there's space for you to do so and they've invited you to, but asking, and people always forget to do this, and I literally forgot the pillar, but is asking, it's become so inherent. What does support look like for you right oh, now? Oh, I love this question. Oh, important because if they don't want advice, then they don't want advice. Like, and the person is then able to say, I'm looking for advice around this, but I really would just like someone to listen and hear me on this. You know, do you have a shared common experience? That's something that they can let you know that they would like. So we're not like, we, we don't have to be guessing, you know, cause it is a weird thing on how to support each other. And it's like, it's, it's like so weird how it's so simple asking, are you in crisis? 
getting an answer and then asking what does support look like for you right now? And that also comes back to boundaries and knowing whether or not from your check-in, if you can fully show up right now, if they say, I want to do my life story for the next three hours and you've got a meeting, like you have to be in a position to say, okay, that's amazing. I, I, I love that you're asking for that right now. This is what I can do. We can either do some safety planning and talk later uh, when I can do this, or let's find you another guy that yeah. can chat right now, because this it's not specific to me because really all I'm doing is being, you know, a safe space, which makes it possible for everyone to peer support anyone if they follow these steps. And that's Honestly, I just want to highlight this question again, because asking this simple question in everyday life, thinking about like us as humans in this world, you know, seeking deeper connections. What if we simply ask this question more often? What does support look like for you right now? Think about how many conversations we have per day where it's like somebody might be freaking out about something or something, you know, something just shitty happened in their life or whatever. And so often they just want to be heard. They just want somebody who's list, who will listen. And it might only be for five minutes, but we are to the earlier point you made. I think so often it's like, how can I fix it? How can I fix it? How can I make it better? How can I make it go away? And it's like, no, don't just put all of that aside and say, what does support look like for you right now? How beautiful. Let's all use that more often. For sure. And, and, Again, another opportunity for everyone just to have a better feeling experience because it also is dispelling any subconscious expectation. You know, we might not want our friend to fix us, but when subconsciously that is sort of our expectation. But when someone asks us, like, what does the support look like for you right now? How can I show up for you? Is something I also say a lot of time when you ask that question, it's like, in order for them to answer it, they have to dispel their expectations that aren't serving anybody because you are only you, you are only a peer supporter and you're there. Oh my gosh. See, I, I love that you're real and raw because Hank is having a little puppy dream right now. And oh! I just have to honor that. You know, as Sean just said, I thought I heard the, him or his little paws yeah, moving. Yeah, he's it's a good oh. dream. It's a good I think there's I think there's bunnies in pop. But, um, oh my God, I love yeah, that. Like, Hank, um, Hank is, um, wait, what kind of dog is Hank again? He's a, he's a mini Bernadoodle and he's also oh. human, like 100%. I speak to, that's the one weird thing about raising a puppy in COVID is I try to explain this to people, but like he understands English. Like, because I, I, I started left his like training of like sit in like these weird things because I talked to him and I said, oh, you know, you know, and this is kind of weird, but I always say like, you know, daddy doesn't like that. And he'll, he stops doing it and he comes and lays at my feet. Like, it's like just weird things. It's like, wow. are you hungry? And he goes to his bowl. Like, it's very like, I don't know. There's, I'm like, I could do a whole nother episode on the value of, I think it's very important. Actually. I love that, that he did this because Having Hank, I actually got Hank. So I told you when I went, my mom babysat me when I was suicidal and we sort of, you know, made decisions as a team. No shame. Uh, you know, I, I definitely went on medicine at that time. I, I tried everything and it, it saved my life. It was right mm. for me in that moment. And it was something that I fought against because I wanted to be this woke guy who could, you know, get out of any sort of chemical imbalance with thoughts. And I believe that's totally possible. But, you know, in the crossroads of all the trauma that I was in, that was something that I did. But I also, I'm one of the few people, not just like, you know, those of us that get dogs and then 
get them emotional support licenses to fly. I actually like with my psychologist, I had a psychologist, psychiatrist and coach decided to get Hank the month after that. And mm. there was something so cool, this bond that I have, I'm, it terrifies me because as you know, like I'm doing all of this for the point where, you know, I get to be a father. I mean, that's, that's my goal. You know, that's something that I, I just have always wanted and always known and, and that I have, you know, I, I definitely want to show up in a very specific way when I bring life up mm. and the bond. And I know, you know, and I, I don't want to get you going, of course, honoring your daily relationship and your grief process with your beautiful dog, but the, the connection, it just, I, I, we always had dogs. We always had pets. I mean, it was like a zoo and my protection complex kind of hated it. I kind of fell with my dad on the Portuguese. Like I liked the animals, but I never, I never had mine. And so it's like, I'm going through what my siblings went through. Cause they all actually had, like, it was their dog. Like mm. they get it, but it was our family dog, but it was like my brother's dog, you know? And my brother's dog, like threw him with cancer, just on the bed the whole time, just like, you know, and I saw it, but I never understood it. But this is just like, it saved my life that like the baby metaphor that Hank didn't know better. And he, he had to be fed in the morning and he had to go out and I didn't, I might not have been in a place for me, but having him, having his emotional support and unconditional love. And there's something about that. He bonded with me during a time where I was too tired to not be vulnerable, that we have this, it is just beyond anything I ever expected with an animal. And it's like, and it's becoming like an emotional support animal commercial in a way, but it's just sometimes it's okay to go, Hey, I'm, you know, for, for our Drew fans out there, you know, I am an Enneagram too. I am a helper and I am an achiever. And if you put anyone in need in front of me, it brings me back to life. It's the, what is the defibrillator? I mean, that is my instant, especially somebody that like, you know, I've come to know or care about, which as you know, is a very quick threshold for me, you know, finding humanity and people and, and kind of caring about them right away. But it's just like this idea of it's okay, rather than just being like, I don't want to get a dog because it's like admitting that I have to bring another living being into my life in order to sort of find some balance and and make it not about me. But it's just like this, this really cool thing of like, you know, that baby metaphor coming to life of just like there, I knew that I might not do it for me, but there was no way that I was going to not take this beautiful puppy outside, like, and not live into the unconditional love. And I don't know if you've ever heard Shonda Rhimes talk with her kids with answering it's the, is it the, the hum or the buzz? But, you know, she had this moment where she was like, you know, succeeding and working and, and, you know, her kids would ask her to play with her and no, honey, I can't, you know, right now. And she had to stop everything and just commit to every time her kids asked her to commit to play that she said, yes. And I have that, I read, I watched that right before the dog. And so every time, so it's just so different. I don't get mad at him when he gets you know, a little rim, but he's a puppy when he gets a little hyper or, and he's, he's just so good by dog standards, but, but, you know, he gets hyper and it's like, I click into that Shonda moment and I'm like, Hey, you're being invited to play by an innocent living creature. And you can choose not to play, but do not blame that. And it's like this final, like, you know, learning lesson for fatherhood, but actually he makes me maybe not want to be a father because when I think about not having him as a dog, I'm like, like, I'm like, I can't have a child out there like oh. roaming free on streets with traffic and other people. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my God. Like, I don't think I could have a part of me that's not like with me. At least he stays, you know, with me. Oh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such an interesting experience. And it's, you know, 
it's a cool one because, you know, sometimes when you're in that place of crisis, having someone talk back or try to fix or try to help, it's not the right, it's not the right fit for right now. You know, it's dabbling in unconditional love, having to you know, start with an animal or whatever it is for you first. I have unconditional love for sunrises and sunsets. And as you know, that's guided a lot of my decisions. Like it may not make sense to my accountant sometimes, but if I'm going to be on earth, there has to be moments like we had in Baja where the sunrise and the sunset are Mm. actually a part of my priorities. Yeah. And that magic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think us, and, and you know what, I think some of what, you know, we get from the animals in our lives are nudges from the universe. Like, Hey, guess what, Addison, you've been working a lot, like a little playtime is also good for the soul Mm -hmm. and don't forget to eat and don't like, these are also little nudges for self care, right. And our own self appreciation. And we forget to play and animals are such a powerful reminder of the power of play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I love that too, because the reminders, like, you know, I, I said, I get to be so fortunate as somebody who loves my job and I know we'll, we'll plug Tether and this is Tether adjacent. So like, well, let's, you know, let's do, will you, you know. dovetail into Tether? Cause I, well, yes. I could talk to you yeah. for like 17 hours yes. and, yeah. but yeah, we'll dovetail this into like, how do, how do we find Tether yes. and what does it look like to be a part of Tether? So yeah, complete your thought, yes. but I, I wanted to have you go there anyway. But, yeah. And it goes in line, but I was just going to say, even when you love your job and I know, you know, this well too that like, even if you love your job, staying sitting for 12 hours straight, even if you love what you're doing, you still need those nudges self-care. Self-care isn't like, doesn't go out the window when you find purpose. You know, it's even more important because you actually want to be at the computer or having conversations. And it's like, so yes, when Hank like needs a walk and I'm like, I don't have time for that. It's like, you need to stand up anyway. You need a walk. Like it's a very cool reminder. Yeah. Um, Can I just say one thing on that? One of the metrics I've talked to, I've talked to my community about this. So it may be a little bit of a repeat, but one, I have three metrics that I check in on now. One is mission. So the impact Mm -hmm. I'm having in the world, the other one is money. So, you know, I Mm -hmm. believe money follows mission. Money is not an obsession for me. And the third is protecting is energy, protecting my energy and making sure that I'm constantly fueling my own energy so that I can serve in the powerful way and show up in the powerful way I want to. And that is part and parcel of what you're talking about as well. Yeah. And there there we go with the dovetail into, you know, self-care and that self-awareness. And so we've built this app, which I mean, really, I, I, I couldn't have spoken more about Tether than being able to have the opportunity to go through the pillars of peer support, because at its heart, that is what it is. So Tether is an app that it's not only for men. I like to say it shows up as a solution to the men's mental health epidemic, and it shows up in a way for men to have 24-7 access to support because life is 24-7, as we know now. And it shows up in that way specifically for them in the way that research, we have the leading men's mental health doctors in the world that advise us at Heads Up Guys out of Canada and their Movember-funded organization. And we've also recently been working a lot with Andrew Renner, who wrote a book called Better Boys, Better Men, which I, mm. which I love. And then you have uh, Cleo, and her book, Cleo Modern Stiller. Manhood, and it's like, yeah, yes, Cleo's amazing. 
Um, and they've all been a part of my education because again, so much of my education, and I know you read an article that's going to come into the world very soon that I've been writing, but you know, my education is not bullet points on a normal resume. It's very experiential and it's getting to have conversations like this. And that's, that's what we're bringing to men because the research actually shows that that's how men respond. And that's how men will be more likely to engage in mental fitness, mental health. And just like, you know, if we, you know, let's like, we can do as many suicide awareness commercials as we want, but if men are not responding to that, if that's not the way that men respond, then let's create something that's for men in the way that they respond, you know? Mm. And it's like, we could go into a whole nother thing on like, you know, how cancel culture is for those that believe in cancel culture. It's not actually for the people you're trying to cancel because those people don't believe in being canceled and that's not how they show up. So if you want to educate mm. them and, and, and teach them something and allow them to resurface, it's, you know, you have to speak in a way that they understand. And I know as a coach, you know all about that as well. But that's, that's where Tether really comes in is it's just, like I said from the beginning, Matt and I going to the highest level of peer support, but we're in the community. I mean, if you're on there, you're, you're, I'm responding to what you're saying. I'm a part of it. We hold digital events. It's become this whole culture really, and it's hard to explain, but it's completely free and it's on the app store and at its basis, you know, it's, it's a safe space where men can show up to support and be supported. And I don't want to underestimate the level of positive celebration that happens in there. It is not Yay. a crisis resource. It's, it's not something where you go, oh, I heard about Tether, you know, for my husband. If he ever gets to a place where he seems off mentally, I'm going to tell him about Tether. Tether, to bring this full circle to my story, the reason I tell, it's that I tell what I tell at the beginning of what I went through is because my mission, which you've helped me identify in Baja, Shelly, my mission is to remind people that you get to build a support system before a life event deems it necessary. You, that has to be there. If you're trying to full-time be in recovery, full-time in survival mode, full-time grieving, and building a community of conscious, compassionate, you know, buddies, I mean, no way. It's too late. No way. It's, Absolutely. You, you want to be utilizing the community at that point. You want to be engaging yeah. in your safe spaces at that point. You can't start building at crisis. And I'm not saying that no one is too far gone. No, you know, before, during, and after we're there for you. So, you know, you still come, we're not a crisis resources, but as you are, are going through something, you definitely can start to build that community at any point. But for those men that, you know, say, well, I'm pretty good you know, I, I, I'm okay. Great. Come and, and practice and normalize the conversation around that. Now, you know, get in the arena, you know, we both love Brene Brown and that's, mm -hmm. I love to say this, but you know, it's the, the guy that's covered in dust in the arena. You, you know, we've built an arena for men to come and literally practice courage, show up for each other. And like, we're getting to this place where we're understanding how men learn and how, how they, how they will respond. And so this month we launched, you probably saw some of this, but our tether pods, which is where you're actually put in a pod with five other men. And we're doing an accountability cohort right now. So each pod has five and then the cohort is like everybody. So you can kind of think of it like a, a mental health, like fantasy football league where there's yeah. all these pods, right? And so they're, they're learning experientially in a group well, the behavior, each taking turns of that balance and that boundary-driven balance of supporting each other, but also learning together and making sense of things. And, and they're doing it. And it's, I designed it with a coach and Chris Wilson is his name and he's an excellent men's coach. And it's something that we found that's, that's just really scalable. And it's, it's exactly what men are saying they want and what the research shows how they will show up. 
So it's like, if we can get, you know, just start to close those gaps of the statistics that I talked about where, yeah. you know, just, I mean, one 70% of 75% of suicides being male in some places, 80 now. And these are pre pandemic statistics. We all mm. know that like tether was built as, as a solution to isolation and loneliness. And as a way for, for people to build really essentially a team for life before the pandemic. So we are, you know, we are multiplied by a hundred now a year and a half into this thing. And, you know, whatever it is that you're going through, I mean, it is just a, a confusing time politically, consciously, career-wise. There's so many guys that show up there in transition. And that's why I loved being down in Baja and learning that. But, but it's, it's there for wherever you're at. And you're the expert of your experience. And, and it's not like, oh, well, I don't want to go on there. We have, we have had guys that convert after six months. Come and see, because the safe space, you see it visibly through the main threads. And, you know, it's, it's perfectly normal and perfectly okay to come at your comfort level and figure out what your barrier to entry is. That's the excitement of my job. What gets in your way? Can we start with one word? Can we start with just championing other men? Can we start with just being a part of an environment that is normalizing the conversation? So experientially, when you all of a sudden one day, I don't know, I just felt like I wanted to share, or I wanted to join one of the community events or I wanted to, you know, do a, a Tales at Tether and share my story. It's not really that out of nowhere. You've experientially yeah. started being a part of this, this safe space for a while, and you see how the culture has maintained itself. And that's the biggest thing I got to say. I mean, I cannot believe the culture that these 3,000 men that we already have have created and, and maintained. I mean, like little to no reports in the entire time. And this is all men, Shelley. I mean, this is anybody who identifies as a male. This is not the, like, this is what true masculinity, what modern mm. masculinity is. Yes, um, hell the male yes. Experience. You know, we yes. don't even, I don't even say, we don't say the anything that starts with a T about masculinity because we don't even want to associate, you know, a, a poisonous term with masculinity yeah. anymore. I love it's just it. like, let's step into it. And, and actually- for anyone questioning this, guys, the recent study, 93% of men don't identify with masculinity the way it's portrayed publicly. Mm. 93%. So that's basically all of us. Like, you know what I mean? It just like, it just, it just makes sense to sort of start to build these connections and be a part of something. And it's, it's really, I, we've used this word a bunch, but it's like, it has taught me after so much heartache and heartbreak that magic exists. And this whole year has been that for me. It's just like talk magic exists. And I know, you know, that I could give you, you know, 10 personal examples and a hundred million professional examples that I've gotten to witness this year. And that's the coolest thing about my job is, is, is getting to see where, where men sort of come into this and then, you know, how it impacts their life on a daily basis and to be getting these emails. And like, you know, I did TMZ on New Year's Eve. You know, I was lucky enough to get to go on. And if you told me that I was going to like, you know, from TMZ, like, you know, get so much response from men across, you know, America and the world saying that, like, when you shared your story, it made me want to come and check it out. And I was just like, whoa, like, I mean, I just didn't like, you know, and that's from, you know, I was literally, I mean, put between Justin Bieber and a yeah. parking lot fight, you know, I was right in the middle there. And it was like, I don't know why I'm closing New Year's Eve, but it's like, this is where I'm meant to be right now between yeah. Justin Bieber and a parking lot fight, which was two men, you know, and, and Justin Bieber, who has now started to, you know, he's Canadian and I'm never going to diss my bro, but you know, like, you know, he, he's now started to talk about his mental health more publicly. And we, and he has been, believe it or not, very courageous in allowing his mental health journey to be so public 
during the most formative years of his life, mm. you know? And so I'm looking at it and I'm going, you know what? I do kind of fit in right here on TMZ. I do like this. This is where it's going. I mean, TMZ is covering it. You know, it's like it's in that means God, it's we're mainstream, here. right? That's we're exactly arriving. it. Yeah, we're arriving. Oh, it, that's that's a beautiful place to end as much as I don't want to end mm-hmm. this conversation. I just think I just want to acknowledge you and Matt is your co-founder, right? You yes, and yes. Matt and the work that you're doing, your entire team for being on this mission. You know, I'm purpose-driven and you know, mental health is one of the things that keeps me going, normalizing this conversation for every human, let alone for, you know, you know, men who have been taught to, you know, that, that traditional bullshit masculinity story is so incredibly necessary. And what you're describing and what you're experiencing, people's reaction to you telling your story and being willing to be vulnerable is exactly the feedback I've gotten from the book. It's like, thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you for not trying to polish this. Mm-hmm. Thank you for mm-hmm. not doing trying it in your to, tone. Yeah. yeah, and doing it very authentically and including humor, but showing us like the fucking mess of it all mm-hmm. and saying that's okay because that's where real conversations start and that's where real community gets built. And that's exactly what you guys are doing. So thank you. Thank you so much, Shelly. It's an honor, and I look forward to talking to you as much as possible. Oh, you know, well, and the, best, and the good thing is we're both in L.A. now. Yeah, so yeah. We're, I'm going to definitely see you. But before we go, where can people dig a little bit deeper? Where can they find you, and where can they find Tether, most importantly? Absolutely. And there's so much content now. We've really been building over over the last few months on, on all these different topics. But Tether, T-E-T-H-R, it is now available in the iOS and the Google Play store. So everybody, which is something for a small startup is a big thing that, you know, we got there. So we're there. We're literally, we can say we show up to all guys now, which is amazing. And then T-E-T-H-R, tether.men is the website. And I just want to say as like head of brand and impact, I take that very seriously. And if we cannot create something of value for the guys when it comes to our content and it comes to what, what we put out there, we consciously curate it. An example of that will be like, you know, podcasts like this, where we'll put those in the app and like, but it's consciously curated and it's there for you. And it's not clickbait. We, there's not a dollar yet of any sort of external advertising or anything like that, but it's really there for you to dig a little deeper. And again, if that's a barrier to entry, that's all there for you to kind of learn experientially and start your journey. And if, if starting your journey, if starting to honor your journey sounds, you know, a little bit like too much for anybody listening, or you think, oh, my husband will go for this. If you're a wife listening or a friend or, you know, whatever it is, which is a very big conversion point for us yeah. women telling their husbands, oh, my husband needs to other. <laughs> but if, I would say if anybody kind of said, oh, that feels like a lot, you know, you've already started. You've mm. already started honoring it. It's just stepping into it. And I do have to say before we sign off, Shelly, I, a lot of people talk the talk, but you walk the walk. And I I really Mm. feel so privileged to know you. And just as another conscious creator, if you guys dig a little deeper, Shelly does uh, donate, as you know, to mental health organization from her proceeds. And yeah, as a, as a conscious connector, that's, that's so important to me. And I, I really do look up to you a lot. And uh, I think, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. This is incredible. It is a great conversation. It is not the last conversation you and I are going to have. It is only the beginning. And your Instagram, is it at Tether for Men? Yes, at Tether for Men. So T-E-T-R for Men. 
Mm-hmm. And you do so much cool stuff. I just have to plug at Addison Brazil. We'll put all this in the show notes, but I just love following you as well. I follow both you and Tether and it's good fun. Like what you put out in the world is so real and so relatable and really fucking funny. So by the way, speaking of funny, <laughs> for those of you who are just listening to us and not actually seeing us, what's behind Addison right now is a tagline. And by the way, I didn't even know this was your Tether tagline. It's we fuck with feelings. And I have been staring at it this whole time going, oh my God, I wish I wrote that. That is so incredible. We fuck with feelings. Coming from you, that means a lot. CMO, CMO, yeah. No, yeah. It's brilliant. Just fuck with the feelings, not the thoughts around it. Really quickly, that's what that is. So just, you know, go into the experience, stay on the feelings and I'm feeling so grateful. So I'm going to, I'm going to sit with that today. Thank you. Shelley. Yeah. Yeah. As, as am I, and I'm just, I'm like smiling from ear to ear. So thank you, my friend. I love you. And I can't wait to see you on your, uh, on your rooftop for a little sunset vino. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Ciao Talk you guys. Too. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Hey rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylbatical.com and follow me at sylbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?